Welcome to the P3 Podcast. The Pronoctis Performance Podcast is the place to be if you're interested in topics such as mindset, coaching, personal development, elite performance, and leadership development. Hello, and welcome to the P3 Podcast. I am ridiculously excited about this one. <laughs> As you can hear, I'm sat here with not only just one of my good friends, but a true inspiration. And he, the best thing about it is he doesn't realize he is. What he does is just normal. Um, so I'll just give you a little bit of flavor about Craig Williams, who's our guest today. Ex-Royal Marine sniper, entrepreneur. Get in there. Elite athlete. It's crazy what you, author. Yeah, many, many skills to, to this guy. And, and they all do actually take a logical sequence, don't they, in terms of what we're going to talk about today. And a lot of the themes are true to what the, the P3 podcast is about. It's about that personal development, that overcoming sort of challenges, the, the, the right mindset for success, um, and, and striving for to be better, you know, and, and to, to do more and to positively influence more people. And I know you do that. And it's great to have you, Craig. Thanks so much for for willing to, to come and speak to us today. It's uh, it's really exciting for me. I, I genuinely mean that. Yeah, no, thank you very much. It's um, it's good to be here. When I look back on the last, certainly the last six or seven years, you know, there's been a couple of things that have been um, pivotal. Is a word I never used to be able to say. I can now, thanks to you. And uh, in, in in everything that I do, and, and your influence is, has been a massive part of that. So to give a little bit back today, and perhaps share some of that with your audience and the people you work with, then. I'm all, I'm up for that. No, it's, it's great. And, and, and the beauty of it is it's a reciprocal arrangement, isn't it? We all, we all look after each other, that's for sure. So it's great. So I want to take it uh, right back to the start. Now, I obviously know um, it's Halifax you're originally from. What was what was your childhood like in terms of, you know, adventure and, and challenging yourself? I think um, adventure and challenge, I don't know how much adventure and challenge I had. Um no, no, I think, no, let me get this right. So m m me and my brother were a, a proper power pair and we used to create adventure from swimming in the local canals to, you know, my mum used to literally give us like an ice cream tub with sandwiches in and and, uh, and an orange an orange juice bottle full of like juice and say, right, I'll see you when the, the street lights come on, you yeah. know. And uh, we, we we take the mickey out of her now because it's like, she's got some great stories. One time we um, we basically put my mum through the roof, uh, well, through the floor <laughs> upstairs because we... Uh, the electrician had been and lifted this trap door and we'd seen it. Got up early the next day and um, we was looking under the trap door. Heard my mum come, so we dragged the rug over the hall, and which sent my mum, you know, my mum stepped on it and went straight through the floor. And uh, and she kind of, you know, she's like, these little buggers, they were terrors when they were kids. And, and my reply is like, well, where the hell were you, you know, <laughs> when we was out creating all this havoc? And um, so, yeah, we used, to, we used to create our own adventures and... Um, as for, you know, what was my childhood like? I had a, I had the usual, it seems usual now, parents split, early age, um, which, and then I had the two sides, dad's side and mum's side and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, but it didn't really, that didn't really affect me or anything like that. You know, I just remember from my childhood that, um, that I had a, a good childhood, childhood, a fun childhood. And my mum and, and a lot of my, my mum's side of the family are very much, you've made your bed, get on with it. You know, they were like, no nonsense, straight talking Yorkshire folk that worked hard. And and that's that's probably the best way to describe my childhood, really. Yeah, and there's a good thing there. You're definitely, a, you know, a hard worker, aren't you? You definitely, um, you've brought that forward into your adulthood. And that, that's, that's something, 
that's something you've been conscious on. I, you, know, you talked to me before about, you know, early starts and your routine now of how you get things done. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more on that for us? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I talk to a lot of people and think, I wish I had more discipline, but I think they forget sometimes that discipline has two meanings. One's a, a verb, it's something that we do, you know, and one's a noun, it's it's a naming word and therefore it's, it's something that is, you know. And um, so therefore any routine is discipline. You know, that makes that makes sense. I'm explaining that right. So, you know, I have the discipline of, of getting up every morning and it's not something I have to do. It's just something that I am, you know. And um, so I usually I usually get up between sort of four and five. I wake naturally, um, having had seven and a half to eight hours sleep, uh, which is something to be practiced and worked on, you know. So um, and, and what I aim to do is try and do a full day's work before everybody else gets up. So then anything that comes in the rest of the day is is on my terms. It doesn't really matter. Um, I've got loads of freedom. Freedom is a massive value of mine. And I've got loads of freedom then to do to do whatever I want, really, without feeling the pressure. And and you sort of think, well, how can you get a full day done between four and, say, eight? Well, it's because no one's there to distract you. So you can just naturally get more done. Um, I also either... I have a, a three sort of step system where I'll simplify something that I'm doing regularly. I'll then try and automate. And if I can't automate it, I'll work really hard to outsource it. And they're the kind of three steps that I try and do. So uh, I don't always nail it. I said, I said, try, you know, I, I try and do it every day. Um, and that's kind of how I, I work on being productive. And that gives me a lot of time then to be able to go off and do my own adventures and, you know, whatever, you know, and that's, that's kind of how it, how it works. Yeah, that, and that, that freedom is important, isn't it? So you do that graft, that dedication early in the morning, get your work done, and then you've got freedom to be distracted, go and, go and have some crazy ideas or crazy projects. And that makes complete sense. But what I'm really interested in, I think what the guys at home will be really interested in, is how did you go from, you know, that that freedom at child level, you know, when you're growing up to where you are now? So the next step for me, in my understanding, was joining the Marines fairly young. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I played a bit of rugby league. Um, I was on the fringe of like professionalism and uh, or, or playing professionally. To be honest, I weren't I weren't quick enough and I, I weren't really big enough. Uh, on the whole, stats were against me. And uh, although a lot of my friends went unsigned and and you know and they they played at a really good level, I was kind of passed over. Especially because at that time they'd introduced the Super League into rugby league, and everybody got an injection of cash and and the guys that weren't really making it just kind of got pushed to a side and and I basically did a little test at school. You probably remember it where you looked at all your personality traits and what you like and what you dislike and 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 top of mind was the Royal Marines. And I'd always I'd always fantasized about being a soldier and being outdoors and and um you know working working outdoors all the time. And when this came up I thought, oh what is this? Royal Marine Commando. So, so there's no family connection? Because that tends to be, I know that with yeah, my experience, a lot of people... Yeah, I, I didn't have any. I had a massive family. My my mum is one of eight. One of them died quite young. So seven brothers and sisters. And my 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 dad is one of six brothers and sisters. I think I've got, you know, loads and loads of cousins, huge family, both sides. And, uh, and not one of them had been in the forces. I think my uncle had done... A couple of years and then he had to leave medically discharged and um but he was the only one that had ever really done my granddad uh was farming in the in, in the war during the war and my grandma was an evacuee 
Um, but, but neither of them had, had sort of served in, in the forces. Um, so yeah, it was just a weird one. And I think what it was, was like, I had this idea of, oh yeah, I want to be outside. And I, I thought when I was really young that I was going to be like um, a gamekeeper or a fish farmer or some, you know, my dad used to joke, like how the hell do you milk a fish? But uh, <laughs> yeah, I said this thing about being outdoors. And then all of a sudden I became aware of this thing called the Greenberry and, and being commando trained. And I was like, what's that? You know, and it just created a bit of intrigue. So what age are you at this point? So I was um, about 15, about 15 and a half. And, um, and at 16, the earliest you can join the forces, I went to the careers office uh, to join the Marines. And I, I remember it really clearly because I walked in and it used to be, it's not like that now, but it used to be that if you couldn't do 10 strict overhand pull-ups, you wouldn't even get an interview. Yeah. And uh, so you walked filters. in, yeah, you walked in. And um, the guy was like, I said, well, I, you know, I'm quite interested in joining the Marines. And uh, he went, right, follow me. Didn't say anything else, follow me. Went into the back of the office and there was a pipe. And he said, right, jump up there, give me 10 pull-ups. And I jumped up and I burnt my hands because it was a heating pipe. And I was like, fucking hell. And he started laughing. And he was like, if you can't stand a joke, don't even try and join the Marines, you know. So then he took me over to the proper pull-up bar and said, right, jump up, do your pull-ups. So I had burnt hands. <laughs> I was shitting my pants already because, you know... I was, I was a young kid and there was a big strapping Marine in front of me. And, um, I, uh, I did the pull-ups like shaking, like a shitting dog, trying to get my last pull-up out. Cause it was tough at, at that age. And, um, and I managed to get an interview. And then from there I started the, the joint, the, the process, the medical and all that. And at the time I was like, I had the chance of perhaps playing, uh, at the least semi-professional rugby league and day levels at school. And um, the guy was like, look, he's, he's young. Um, he's got a couple of other potential avenues that he, he should explore. And um, he basically sent me away and unknown to me until recently. He'd phoned my mum and he said, look, in order to join the Marines, he's got to have your signature. Please don't sign the paperwork because let him explore his A-levels, rugby league, see what happens. And then he can come back when he's a little bit older because he's probably just a little bit too young. And, um, and I didn't want to hear that at that age. <clears throat> but um, that's what I did anyway. My mum said, look, I'm not signing it. Uh, do your A-levels. We think it's a good idea. So I, I did enough to scrape a couple of A-levels together. Um, I, I carried on playing rugby league for a bit in the academy at, uh, at Huddersfield. And um, come the, the minute I could, I could join then, you know, it was like 17 and a half really. I could start this application without my mum's signature. I was like, right, I'm, I'm going, I'm doing it. Um, so that was it. I joined at 17 and a half and I was crap. <laughs> no, I was, it was a big, big culture shock. And I think I was just young enough and daft enough to just soak it all up and, and hang in there. You know? um, so, so when, when you say you were crap and you know, it's, it's famously difficult, isn't it? You know, the, the, the Royal Marines training down at, um, at Limstone there. What was it like? You know, let's, let's, let's take into account that most of the listeners to this have got no military background whatsoever. Just, just describe it to them. Yeah, I think, I think the, the SAS Who Dares Wins series gives it, you know, a little bit of insight into what it's like. Um, although even that can't really, you know, there's a difference between doing a TV show for a, a couple of weeks or whatever and doing something for nine months, like the training is nine months long. Um, I went through everything from, um, you know, exhilaration to tears on the phone, you know, begging my mum to come and get me. And she's like, you bloody made your bed, you get on with it, you know? And, um, yeah, yeah, re really tough. Uh, some, some of the things, 
you, you, would, you would call it inhumane. Um, in the military, they call it conditioning because, you know, let's face it, at some point you're going to, you're going to face some quite tough, tough times and you need to condition for that, you know, and you're going to be asked to do some pretty, pretty horrible things at times so that everybody at home can sleep soundly in bed. And, uh, and that takes conditioning as well. So everything is a process to not so much to turn into like a robot, but just giving the ability to, to act without thinking when you need to. Um, do you want like specific Yeah, times? why not? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I listened to a podcast recently, a friend of ours, Phil Quirk, and he was talking about this thing called wet and dry routine. And uh, so basically what wet and dry, dry routine is, on the outset, it's, it's a way for you to look after yourself when you're living outdoors, perhaps for years on end, um, and being able to, to function. And, but deep down, it's the initial start of building resilience and building grit and, uh, and being able to get through challenging things. So basically, regardless of the weather conditions, you do whatever you do during the day in one set of clothes, which would just get wet, muddy, you know, stinking, whatever you are, you might be completely submerged, crawling through swamps, whatever it is. And, uh, and then that night you would get undressed from that into some dry kit, which you would then sleep in to give your body a bit of a rest, dry and all that kind of stuff. But then the next morning or whatever time you get up, you've got to get your wet kit on and everything inside you is sort of saying, stay in your dry clothes, you know, stay comfortable. But then if you did that, you would end up with two lots of wet kit and therefore, you know, then potentially a liability. And, and that's what, you know, that's one of the things that you remember from, uh, from your training, not practicing this wet and dry routine and um, really just putting yourself in, in uncomfortable conditions, um, you know, crawling through thorn bushes and, you know, and, and, and lots of stuff like that. Uh, another time, I, I remember phoning home in tears after this one, but uh, we used to get what we called quick changes. So um, basically the idea was like, it, they, can only, they can only thrash you physically so much having you doing press-ups and running up and down hills and all this kind of stuff. And and um, and for some people, it gets to the point where if they don't give in, they're not going to give in. They'll, they'll pass out before they, they give in. And, and, and the majority of the early days of Marines training is is trying to get you to give in. You know, So you, you don't have to be the fastest, the strongest or anything like that. You've just got to hang in there no matter what. And um, so what they then start doing is putting some like psychological tests on you. And one of them is is uh, to mess around with your spare time and your your kit and, and all this kind of stuff. So you do these quick changes. So it'd basically go like this. You'd line out outside the accommodation and the instructor would go, right, the time now is half two. In five minutes, you'd be back down in your sports gear. So you'd sprint up four flights of, four flights of steps um, into your room, open your locker, get get undressed, get your, um, get your, your uh, clean gear on, sprint back down, you know, in five minutes, line out again, and then they'd just thrash you in that up and down in the mud, in the tank, you know, big water tank and all this. Line you out again, right, time now is quarter to three. In five minutes, you'll be back down here in your best best dressed uniform or whatever. So you sprint up and this would go on for, until you you basically used every item of clothing in your, in your locker. So your locker was just full of just muddy, shitty clothes, an absolute mess. And then obviously what would follow would be a locker inspection late in the night or whatever. And it's just going forever. And you're just messing with sleep deprivation and, and really testing your character. One particular time when I was doing the, the, the quick changes, 
as, as one of the unwritten rules in the Marines is that every time you get changed, you, you get showered. It, it dates back to the naval times on, on ships when cleanliness was a real, you know, is a real big thing. <clears throat> and it still is today. But um, so you'd have to have a shower. And and when you have a shower, you you have to wear flip-flops because of brookers and all this. And they're just these little unwritten rules that you do. And um, I, I ran in to get a shower without my flip-flops. And our drill leader was there and he had big hobnail boots, metal studs in the bottom, you know, really shiny. You can see your face in it. And I was like, Williams, stand still. And I stand to attention. And he came along and he stamped on my feet with his hobnail boots. And uh, my feet were bleeding. He goes, get some fucking flip-flops on, you know, and and it hurt, you know. And, and I was a kid, I was like 17 and a half, whatever, and this big guy with a massive 80s-style tash had just stamped on my feet, and it really hurt. And I phoned home, and I was, you know, I was like, mom, you stamped on my feet, they're all cut up, I don't know what to do, you know, I can't handle this anymore, and all this. And, and she was like, you made your bed. <laughs> <laughs> you knew this was coming, you get on with it. Now, I look back at that, and I think, that was too far, you know, and there's a, there's a definite line between testing someone's character and out and out bullying. And that, and that was an indication of bullying. Um, but, uh, but it was, it was things like that all the time. Um, does that, that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Yeah. And it, 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 it seems like, you know, you know what the output needs to be. So you're looking for somebody who's disciplined, is going to follow orders, have the right mindset, not going to give in. They're going to be there for their, you know, their, 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 their team members, if you like. Um, but you do have to test that. But I think that you also, as what you're saying is you've got to test it in the right right way. And I think times have moved on, haven't they? And I'm sure it's not like that now to a certain degree, because I don't think you can get away with it. But at the same time, they've still got to do the same output or have the same output. Um, how do you think, I don't know if you've you got contacts still in now. Is it, has it yeah, changed yeah. slightly now? Yeah, it's changed a lot. It really has changed a lot. It's gone from what used to be, you know, what I've described to much more coaching, mentoring, which I think is is immense because you know I did time as a as a recruit instructor as well and and that's kind of the way I, you know I hate bullies and I hate I hate bullying. Um, so for me, I was I was very much wanting to nurture great Marines rather than you know than, than trash young lads or whatever. Um, so it's definitely gone more into that. I think there is like there is in society now. You know, it, it's a lot of it's polarized. So. I think recruits are much more informed than than we used to be. Of what's acceptable and what's not, and what if it's not acceptable, these are the routes. And I think there is talk of them having like a yellow card that if they feel like they're being bullied, they can sort of know that's that's too far, and and that will trigger an investigation or whatever. Um, so I think I think it's gone in the right direction, but as with everything, there is that that polar side of it where. It's just a little bit too much. That said, I still think we're getting the cream of, of British youth. You know, I, I really do. So, Oh, the output's incredible. And you just got to look at some of the things that ex-Marines are doing after they've left. It's the, it's that principle of the can-do attitude, isn't it? You know, that positive mm -hmm. mindset, which we know we're going to talk about later on. And, and you're a great example of that. So fast forward then. So nine months of pleasantries, should we say? Yeah. Enjoying the bottom field down there. Um what did what did your actual serving career post training look like? I remember probably two parts. Um, first part was very much what you would expect to join for. So lots of travel. I think I did twenty two different countries in my first year of service. Everything from from mountain 
like a mountain environment, the Arctic environment, jungle, desert, you know, I did, I did all the, the major environments. And then, um, and then after that, I played a lot of rugby, probably did about two years of playing rugby every two weeks. Uh, so I spent a lot of time in a tracksuit. And then my, my, the, my commanding officer, well, my troop commander then said, look, Craig, we're, oh, Williams, you don't use your first name. <laughs> Definitely Ma- not. <laughs> Ma- Marine Williams. Um, you're playing a lot of sport and this is brilliant, but we're trying to write reports and we never see you. Um, so you've got to stop playing rugby. And uh, so I was like, okay, fair enough. And then I started uh, boxing. <laughs> so I started boxing on, on the back of that. And then I did 12 months sort of really boxing, um, like unit level and then onto like the Marines level, um, which was great. But same again, we're trying to write reports. We never see you. Yada, yada. So then I, I really started getting into soldiering and it probably took me those three or four years to find my feet. Like I said, you know, I, I struggled in training. Um, I struggled physically. I struggled. It was, it was hard. Um, and a massive learning curve. Re, you know, you sort of think you can only really do training phys, you know, physical training for a couple of hours a day. And then it becomes detrimental to what you're doing for the rest of the time. And of course you're learning about radios, camouflage and concealment, you know, tactics and, and drills and all this kind of stuff. And the learning curve is, is massive. It really took me by surprise. And I, I struggled with that learning curve. And um, it was only after like two or three years of being in an, in an actual commando unit when it, things started to fall into place. And I actually found that given time to catch up, I was very good at it, very good at it. And, I, you know, I was, I was, I was definitely... Uh, a member of my sort of 70 man company that people looked up to, you know, and, and, and listened to. And and I felt I had probably developed through rugby as well. Uh, I, have, I had a bit of a, a knack for leadership and inspiring people, especially when it started to get hard. And there's a lot of people that can lead people in the general day to day, but when things like it comes down to brass tacks or whatever, it, t- it takes someone special then to step up. And, and I felt I had a bit of a skill at that. Um, so then my soldiering career pretty much started and, um, I did a lot of, a lot of, you know, specialist soldiering courses and, um, and I found that I started to get noticed and then started getting promoted pretty quick. So, uh, when I, when I left training, there was, there was Marines, Lance Corporals, which is like the first ladder really of the promotional, or the first run of the promotional ladder, um, that had done like 13 years. And they had like, you know, great grades on their, um, on their reports and what have you, but they were still Marines waiting to go on like a, a course to become a corporal. And after sort of five years, I, I was loaded onto one of these courses. I got an A on the course, um, which was, I didn't come top, but I was very close. So you're about 22 at this point? <clears throat> guessing. Yeah, 20, 22, 23. Mm. Um, we, I'd done an operational tour in Kosovo, uh, which was immense, probably one of the best operational tours I've, I've ever done purely because, um, we, we were the law. Yeah. You know? So there's a lot of peacekeeping and yeah, it was, it was all peacekeeping yeah. and, um, and it was a, you know, a, a different environment from sort of scratching around in, bu- in, in bushes and that kind of stuff to, you know, actually being sort of embedded in the, in the city and the city just kind of cracking on with its life and you, you maintaining order and, um, and getting guns, drugs, and, you know, other bits of organized crime off the street. It, it was just, it was an immense tour. Um, from there, um, I was 
picked up really quick. Also, from there, I went on to do the junior command course, which is the course to become a corporal. And um, and the, the, the rule was that when you finished a course like that, you're nowhere near ready enough to progress on to the next step. So it's accepted that your next report would be like a C, sort of saying that you're developing, you know, you're in your role now, you're developing well, and um, everything's fine. Um, B would be like ahead of his peers, still got room for development. And I went from there straight onto the initial invasion of, um, of Afghanistan. And, um, I, as a corporal, I was doing the role of a, of a sergeant. I was in, in charge of, um, a support troop. So under me, I had machine gunners, mortarmen, snipers, uh, and I kind of ran this, um, ran this little troop and, uh, on the operation, I got a, I got a commendation. It was the third commendation that I'd received during in my time at the Marines. And um, my first report after my junior command course was an A. Right. And everyone was like, well, that just doesn't happen. And it shouldn't happen because by rights, how can you finish a junior command course one minute and then being told you got a, a senior command course to become a sergeant within six months? It's just... Just to put this in context for those that are working you know, other industries, we're talking about somebody who's 22, 23, becoming a team leader. So, you know, so you're, you're in charge of a team of six, seven, eight, potentially, yeah. to then doing a promotion course, being tested in a theatre, going out to, to Bosnia, and then coming back and effectively being told, well, actually, you can become a leader now and, and lead teams and team leaders at the age of potentially 24. So that's a lot of responsibility on someone fairly young. So you've progressed exceptionally quick there. And if I remember rightly, and, and if it crosses over with my experiences, they had to give you an A because of your level of performance and the experience and evidence based on that report. So it's not a case of somebody's going, he's doing really well, I like him, let's give him an A. They have to back it up with evidence. So obviously you did you did something right. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I did a, did a lot right, really. I mean, um, it was a really successful operation in time in, in, in Afghanistan. Um, we all know kind of the, the, the kind of crap that went down there. Um, and I, I was working, I was, I was doing the job of someone more senior to me. Um, and I did it really well. To I was going to say, the, it's not a case of just stepping up, you're stepping up yeah. and doing it really, really well. So does that, does that tap into your, your natural sort of gift and flair for leadership? Do you think it was an opportunity for you to excel? Yeah, it was. I mean, we were as the maneuver support troop, we were the heaviest troops on the ground. We, you know, some of the, the kit we were carrying was, equal to our body weight. It was just absolutely ridiculous at altitude as well. So we basically, you know, from stepping off the helicopter, we'd literally be able to walk three or 400 meters before we had to stop and rest. And, um, and obviously, you know, you've got young lads looking at me one for an example and, um, and then also for instruction, you know, and, and, and looking for that reassurance as well. So it was all about the leadership. Um, because I had these, young Marines that had a really, really tough job to do. And, um, and, and it really did at times boil down to, you know, playing them against the senior, senior officer. They, they don't think you can do this and all, you know, just lots yeah. of different ways of, of getting people to get that kit up a hill and do, do some unpleasant stuff like, so, um, yeah. And I, and, and, and I, I did it well. I felt at home. Really did. Did you did you ever experience something? I, I mean, we used to call it leaders' legs. You know, where you get you get that opportunity to take on extra responsibility, and it just gives you a natural lift. You you, you thriving under it. You know, and um, we talk quite often about when you're challenged, 
you can either see it as a threat or as an opportunity, you know, and that threat is, oh my God, what am I going to do here? And we start to freeze or you see the opportunities here to excel. And I think that shift in mindset can really make a difference in your level of performance at that time. Is that something that sort of resonates at that time with you now looking back? Yeah, definitely. You know, there is definitely times where if, if I'd have been able to step back into the shadows and, and then I did a bit of an easier ride, I would have done. Um, but I, 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 I couldn't and therefore I didn't. Um, but there was also another aspect that we're not talking about is that uh, one of my roles was um, I had control what they call the I-Star function of the company, which is intelligence, surveillance and target acquisition as one, as one of the snipers in the company. And um, so as, as one person or a pair, we're a force multiplier. So, you know, we can be have such a massive effect on the safety and the effectiveness of the whole company, just two people. Um, so every time we'd stop for a rest, for me, it would be kit off, grab my rifle, grab my obs kit, me and my, my, my spotter, and number two would leg it up to the top of a feature so that we could keep a lookout and all this kind of stuff. And it was, I was constantly have, have to do that little bit extra. And, um, and I, I thrived on it. You know, I really did it. You, you just hit the nail on the head there where people like see it as a, as an obstacle or an opportunity. And, and I, I did see it as an opportunity. Um, I didn't want to be part of a 70 man snake through the valley. I, I, I much prefer being a little bit renegade and a little bit rogue do, doing my own thing, you know? So, and I think you've painted a really good picture there in terms of when you were saying, you know, going out as your two man teams and you had specific roles to, to, to deliver. I think many people listening to this would be thinking about, you know, as you're talking there, the pictures of, you know, your, your typical Hollywood movie of a sniper would would sort of flash before your eyes, really. Um, can you give us a little bit more rich detail around the role of a, of a sniper? Because it, it's not just laying down in a scratch pit, is it, with a rifle ready to go. There's so much more in there. So what are your roles and responsibilities as a sniper? Well, probably your biggest thing probably is reporting. Um, purely because, you know, you're a small a small team and you can conceal yourself better and your your observation kit and equipment is just much, much better. So the average scope on um on a modern day rifle is times four. So it's it's four times closer when you look through the site. Whereas my my best scope was times twenty-five. So that that extra magnification just gives you such a power of of observation. But then you've also add Add training and, and and all that on top of it as well. It just means your ability to report is just so much more. You've also got a lot of responsibility in that you can control what we call indirect fire. So what I mean by that is you can have direct fire, which is is governed by weapon range. So basically it, it's, it's pretty flat trajectory. So what you can see is what you can hit. But indirect fire is you can you can fire over hills you know, and, and, and a much further distance. And indirect fire includes fast jets, bombers, and, and all that kind of stuff. So you, you could control uh, a lot of firepower. As a pair, as a Marine, Lance Corporal, Corporal on the ground, you can control something that really would need a general to sign it off and say, yes, yeah, okay, let's go. You know, so it, and that's what I mean by like it being a force multiplier. It's because you, you're, in, you're in control or you have an influence on, are much more than just where your weapons point in your firing. Add to the fact that when we first arrived in Afghanistan, the the Americans were sort of that their weapons were 
the, the effective range was about 250 meters, which is a fair distance, like, you know, and, um, but the, the Afghan weapons were effective to 300 meters with the altitude, probably 350 meters. So, so the Afghans could, could outrange them with their with the majority of their, their weapon systems. All of a sudden we landed in the country and we had an effective range up to a mile. My, my, my longest shot was just, just short of a mile. And obviously, you know, the, the difference there, or, you know, you, you went from insurgents and terrorists dancing on ridgelines thinking they can't, could no longer be hit to shit in the pants, basically, you know, because all of a sudden, different sheriff in time. Come, you know, come in with new, your new toys. New yeah, sheriff yeah. in town. Um, so, yeah, uh, I don't know if that gives you a bit of an insight. When you're actually, you know, nuts and bolts of it and you're laid and people just sort of see you under a bush and all that kind of stuff, well, concealment is a skill and... Um, it's uh, it's a, a form of protection and it uh, it is a skill that's practiced a hell of a lot. So that's that's one thing you, you're doing things like as you're moving through vegetation and whatever you're looking at the vegetation, thinking right that that's that's brown grass, but I've got green grass. Okay, change the grass in my in my camouflage and and all these different kind of things. And when you actually get down in position, you're working with your your spotter, your number two, and you're looking at the wind speed, the altitude, which had a massive effect. Um, the, the usual effective range of the of the, the service rifle at the time was 900 meters, and um, that was it was it was like like I said, up to a mile. You know, you could shoot. So, and that, that's because the altitude was so much. You know, the air was so much thinner, less resistance. Um, the ambient air temperature can affect it. So you're looking at that. You're looking at um, you know, so so many different things there. The wind direction, wind speed, you know, just just so many calculations going on in order to try and and get your rounds as accurate as you can. And the you know, people sort of see these these incredible shots in Hollywood where it's a moving target, you know, a thousand meters and they hit first time. Well, it, that doesn't happen, you know. Um what you need is you need a couple of what we call spotting rounds so that you can you can work out where you kind of need to be and then you're kind of you're praying for less movement as possible from your from your target but um yeah there's, there's a there's a hell of a lot going going on as you're as you're preparing a, a shot or and it sounds like you're not just going for a walk in the park here there's so much and you've got so many roles to sort of deliver i want to pull out a little bit where you talked around your responsibility for sort of reporting in you know reporting in what you see in your intelligence you know t- t- which which feeds into the the bigger tactical and strategic decision-making, because that massively crosses over with obviously business world. Um, the bit I was getting there was the the trust from higher up on you to do your job effectively, that you're going to report in the right information. They might check and challenge before they make a decision, but they're, they're fully relying on your eyes on the ground, aren't they? And I think sometimes that's lost within organizations where the people that see the big picture try and get involved in the smaller picture when they haven't actually got the right context and information. Um, so that trust is vital, isn't it? I, th- I think it is. Is that what you think? Yeah, but it works both ways, isn't it? There's trust coming down, but there's trust in yourself as well. You know, trust that, I mean, I remember looking at, uh, we, I spotted something that just didn't look right. You know, and sometimes we, we call it combat indicators where it's it's either the presence of the abnormal or the absence of the normal. And, and you just look at it and you're like, I don't know what it is. It's just not right. And I remember I, I, I spotted something. It was about a chaos in the valley floor. And I was like, I don't know what it is. I can't work out what it is. I just know it's not right. And it shouldn't be there. So 
Um, we basically guided a small section onto it. It turned out to be one of the biggest ammunition dumps that had been found since Second World War. And I, I didn't, you know, all I could see was a little bit of discoloration, some, some, some earth that had been moved. And, you know, next thing the engineers are coming in and they're blowing it. And, you know, and ju just from having a little bit of trust in myself. And I think if, if I'd have constantly been shot down by my superior officers, I wouldn't have had that trust. So it's, it's, it's both ways. And as well as that, if I'd have been proven to be um, untrustworthy or a bit of a liability, or I don't always give the full, the full account of something or whatever, then they would never have acted on that either. So it's, you know, it's, it's, I think it's something to be nurtured, isn't it? You know what I mean? It's, yeah. I talk, I talk to um, our elite athletes about this in terms of, you know, that, and this is our benefit as pro Noctis working with elite athletes is the fact that they can talk to somebody outside of their, their close, their close remit, if you like, that I'm struggling at the minute, you know, I'm, 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 I'm struggling in confidence or I haven't got clarity. I don't understand this. or I'm just a bit tired. Or I'm not sleeping well. If they went inside, you know, an organization and said to the head coach, I'm struggling at the minute with the hands up. It's still very much an old school way of going, well, I'll actually just take a week off and oh, we're not picking you for this race. That's not what they're saying. You know, they're just saying, I, I need just a little bit of um, a recalibration, if you like. So having somebody outside of that bubble to have that conversation with, because the last thing they can do is trying to um, get across their lack of confidence, lack of trust in themselves at that moment. And it might be just, you know, a couple of words, a couple of right questions to get that, that clarity and then they're back on track again. But sometimes it just makes it, a bigger deal than it actually is. And I think this crosses over to the workplace as well, that people don't feel like they can speak up when they're struggling. People don't feel like they can put their hands up and go, I need some help at the minute for, for the fear of, of reprimand really, or the fear of judgment. Um, but there's no time for that. When you're on, when you're on that front line, when you're, when, you know, when people's lives are at risk, there's no time for that, is there? No, it's, it boils down to integrity as well. And um, I always remember the mnemonic for leadership that they use in the military, which is Jubwick. And it stands for judgment, understanding, bearing, wisdom, integrity, courage, and knowledge. And it just re rolls off my tongue now because these are the kind of things that you would learn when you, you spent your time running around a, a field, you know what I mean? Carrying kit. Um, but integrity is massive. And and I think everybody in the Marines as a commando, we've all got a, a shared experience in that you've earned a green berry. And in order to do that, you, you've, you've got to, you've been tested. Therefore, you're already one rung up on the integrity ladder. Um, and then as you're deploying and you're doing your training and you're all doing the training together and you get to learn how people work similar to like a, a team, a football team or whatever, you know, when, when players start to work, they can almost, you almost know where their, their opposite number is going to be. You know what I mean? Because it just comes automatic, you know, this and, um, and it's the same when you're soldiering, you know, therefore, you get to the point where if someone says, look, I just don't know what it is, but it, it warrants being checked out. They're willing to, to act on that. Yeah. And I think, and again, as you were talking there, it, it's that, it's that team ethos that you don't want to let anybody down either. You, you do want to be the one that drops the ball or if you do, you've got to make sure your next step's a positive one because you know, there's another team over there, over the other side of the mountain doing the same work. And we're, we're a team here. That, that clarity on a common goal though, isn't it? That's really important in terms of this is our mission. This is our intent. We need to achieve that. This is how we're going to do it. Now it's up to you to go and deliver that. You know, it was that, was that quite, was that quite clear in the moment? Was, was the intent really clear before you went out on the ground? The intent was clear, but it, on the first operation that we, we deployed on, 
Um, we thought we was going to be knee deep in bodies, bayoneting bloody whoever. Uh, we soon realized that wasn't going to be the case. Actually, there was very little activity going on and um, we'd kind of missed the party a little bit. And, and there was a definite shift from it going, right, okay, we've got this common goal, this common aim, let's go and do it, to the point where I was like, there's no one here. <laughs> now what? Because we're carrying all this heavy kit, and you know what I mean? And why? Um, but there was then there was a shift then to the foundations of of being a commando, and that is that the, you know professionalism, pride in what you're doing, and okay, this might be the case. However, we might go over this next mountain, and it might be a shit ton of activity there. So stay with it, stay alert, you know, concentrate, focus, because you don't know what's around the corner. Um, but there was a shift, and there was even you know when we talk about leadership, there was people going, "What the fuck are we doing here?" You know, <laughs> Craig, find out what's happening. You know, yeah. go and speak to someone, and you know, because we're wasting our time. We need to be over there where all the war fighting's going on, and. You know, obviously there is a there is a big picture with, with all these things. Yeah. Um, and that's where we talk about situational leadership because then your leadership at that moment is to to allay those fears of those guys working with you and in terms of that there's a bigger picture here, what we're working towards, and this is just our role now. Um, I was really interested um, to hear more about that bit where you were talking about um, pride in your job, you know, and, and having that trust. Because I think a lot of people um, turn up certainly for day one of their new job, super optimistic, super excited, super motivated. And then depending on the culture of the organization and the team that they go into, it can very quickly change to a negative and they just merge into the culture that's there. And I think that's where the biggest challenge moving forward is that just sheer effective leadership. And there's no black and white in that, you know, in terms of what effective leadership looks like. It all depends on what your people are doing and what your strategic aim is. And and really good leaders are exceptionally flexible. And is that something that you had, do you think, in terms of did you were you a flexible leader? Um, I think I was I think I was flexible to a point. And then I was never scared to say, fucking suck it up. Let's let's get on with this and get this done. Um ultimately I think without sort of sitting down and really putting some thought to it and just off the cuff answer like now, I think there's a whole, you know, almost like a funnel where we use flexible behavior and, and flexible leadership. And then if that's not working at some point, you've got, you've got to stand and almost say, you either follow me or you don't. Let's go, you know, and, um, so but, but that's a form of flexibility in itself because some are just fully on it. This is the way you do it. Do it now. Yeah. 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 Very, I've, I've very never, controlling. I've never been one like that. Yeah. You know, it's, I think, you know, it's uh, there's a saying, in, you know, in marketing, it's far better to have a compelling offer than a convincing argument. And, you know, and if you're trying to convince people that this is a good idea, well, you know, you're on, you're on to a bit of a, a bit of a, a loser already. If you've got something that's compelling, then, you know, that is completely different. And I think, it's weird leadership, and, and you probably know the interviewee turns interviewer. But um, you know, I've I've had people where the last thing they want to be do when they're managed is to be sort of man managed and controlled. You give them a slight bit of control, and they suddenly become man managers. You know, and, and I've seen that quite a bit, and, and I've seen people that, that try and lead people with a stick. You know, and um, whether it's carrot and the stick or just stick. Um, I think today's society, I'm not sure how much that would, how much effect that would have, but yeah, it's actually, yeah, uh, the, the lack, 
the lack of accountability is, is an issue at the moment where leaders and managers don't feel empowered enough to say, actually, that behavior is not acceptable. And it's not acceptable because of this, this, and this. So what we're going to do is we're going to do this instead. You know, so it's that ability to have that. The class was a difficult conversation. And I, every organization and, and leader I, I coach or executive leader, I say, there's a problem with that. Is you're calling it a difficult conversation before you've had the conversation. So even your mindset going into that is going to be sort of quite negative. No, let's have a productive conversation. So, you know, you said this, this was the outcome. Let's have a chat about it. That's not what we do around you. This is this would have been better. Let's move on. You know, let's not, let's not hold on to it, but it needs to be called out. And I think the knock-on effect of that conversation to everybody else in the office, in the working place, is that, oh, right, yeah, that's, that's not, there is accountability here. Because at the end of the day, you're getting paid. You're on a salary. There's an expected outcome and you've got a role to do, but also there's there's the softer skills around that, the, the way we conduct ourselves day to day. Um, and a lot of our work is around that accountability because I think we've gone from being quite controlling and direct, you know, which definitely would have been your Royal Marines training. There's no, there's no, there's no sit, let's sit yeah. around a table and have a discussion around this. No, you get it done and you get it done now. And, and if you're too late, you can do it again until you get it done on time, where that's for a set outcome, a set output at that time where we've gone the other way now, where it's all about sitting around a table and have a discussion about every single thing, where actually sometimes it's got to be some clear direction because us as humans, we need that. We need that clear direction. Yeah, definitely. And it's nuggets like that where I love chatting to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because people will always, even with the best will in the world, they'll try and do the best they can with the resources available. But sometimes they need to they need the torch shone in the right direction and going, well, actually, that's where we're heading. Your, your path may veer off on the way there, but at least you know what the objective is. And that crosses back into the military world, doesn't it? In terms of our objective today is to s seize that. Even back in the day, you know, we're going to go and seize that castle. Well, we don't all go single file going at it. We, we, we split all the teams up. We have a tactical approach. Regardless of what happens on those contact times, we know what the objective is, you know? So we're all pulling in the same direction. Sometimes that clarity is not there, mm. you know? And, and that's very much some of the roles we do around that. So... How did Craig Williams, the Royal Marine, get to where you are today as an entrepreneur, an author, an adventure athlete, and, and a very successful one of that? To put it in, if I could use one word, two words, through failure, um, if I'm honest, because uh, with everything that went on in the Marines and, and some things before the Marines, um, I got into a bit of a sh shitty mind state and... Uh, I, I actually got in got in, in into shit. I got into uh, into trouble, like, and um, I ended up going to prison and and spending two and a half years of a, of a five year prison sentence, locked up, um, losing my freedom. Now, in 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 one way, it was terrible because I I lost my career, I lost everything that I'd worked hard for for well over a decade. I'd gone from decorated soldier to, you know, just just a number in prison and, and I didn't actually fit in because I'd never really experienced drugs or drug taking. Um, bullying is, I hate it, like I said before, and there was bullying everywhere. And um, yeah, everyone, because I held myself differently and I walked around differently and I had different morals and ethics, they thought I was an undercover copper. So my, I had a real tough time um, in prison. Um, but on the other hand, it gave me two and a half years to resettle ready for civvy street. And I, I left the Marines with soldiering skills. And, and I, I remember sort of thinking, what the hell am I going to do in, in civvy street? Because I've just got no civvy qualifications, a couple of A-levels that I scraped um, that had no relevance. You know, one was biology, one was art. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that's I'm going to start drawing elephants. I weren't going to make it a, a living like. So um, I, I like, 
I basically got into the prison system and I was like, right, I'm going to wring this system dry for every everything I can pick up. So, I, you know, I, I did maths, English, web design. I did all sorts of different courses um, and in super quick time as well. And and I think that's where personal development, which I'd never really thought of or or um, or heard of, started, you know. Well, well, when you think back now, that whole Royal Marines experience was a huge personal development journey, wasn't it? You just didn't use that language. Um, before we go on to that, you know, without going into the finer details, the obvious question is going to be, you know, what, what happened? happened? How did you end there? Yeah, with, I, I, yeah in your yeah, words. Yeah, it, it was a bit of um, misguided loyalty, really. A good friend of mine who looked after my my partner at the time whilst I was away in Afghanistan, um, his, some, his family got in, in a bit of crap with uh, with a local sort of gangster and, and, and drug dealer. And he, he cooked up this idea that he was going to teach this guy a lesson. And um, I was on leave from a, a tour in Afghanistan. And he was saying, you know, Craig, will you help me come and teach this guy a lesson? And, and on the face of it, I was like, yeah, he fucking deserves it. And um, so, so that's what we did. And uh, the guy was a real player. Probably careful words yeah, yeah. I use now, yeah, but yeah, it, yeah. it was a real player in the criminal world and um in essence we had a gunfight and on his drive and um the real the thing that i and looking back now free of emotion and everything else that i knew was wrong was i felt perfectly at home yeah perfectly at home i i felt like an alien in my home life married you know with a young child and and trying to get on you know going to the shops didn't feel right go to the bank, couldn't even do, answer the phone, not a chance. You know, I just wasn't functioning in everyday life yet. This kind of, you know, under fire, like. It's what, it's what you knew. It's, yeah, what, it's, it's what you've been it's exposed to, it's what you were trained for. Yeah. That was normalized. Yeah. And, and, and unbeknown to us was the guy was such a criminal that he was under, under, under observation and, um, and everything was caught on camera. And, um, Basically, my the, my friend was was caught by the police there and then, and, and, and banged up, and and I I legged it, and I went into straight into escape and evasion mode, and um, it was the depths of winter, and I was again just whether it's conditioning or whatever, I I was doing likes of that. I tipped out a bin, got undressed, put all my clothes into a bin bag, swam across a, a raging bloody river. Um, pretty much on New Year's Day, got on the other side, dry kit back on, you know, and, and I was in complete escape and evasion mode and um, and felt perfectly at home, like, uh, which is obviously, obviously wrong. I know from there I was, I was quite quickly picked up by the police, you know, I wasn't a criminal mastermind and I got caught. And um, and, and I went and, and it, I, it was looking like I was going to kind of not walk away, but I was going to get, looked on quite leniently. The original charge was attempted murder. And, um, part of my defense was if, if my intention was to, was to kill the guy, he, he would have been dead. I had the opportunity and, and, and all that. And, um, that was never my intention, which actually held water. Um, you know, they could kind of see that my career in the Marines and my commendations and all that, you know, stood me in, in good stead as well. And, uh, and quite leniently I got, um, I ended up being charged with a reckless act of arson, which is quite a serious, it's quite a serious, a very serious, let's not play it down, a very serious charge. 
I, I didn't realize how serious it was, but um, with arson, it kind of suggests like a psychological thing. You know, not everybody starts fires and all this yeah. kind of stuff. And, and to be honest, you know, there was no fire, but this was the charge that we ended up with. And um, anyway, I picked up this charge. I, I went, I went more or less from there straight to straight to prison and uh, having lost everything really. And that's what I mean by I got here through failure. Um, in the period of being first being picked up by the police, I, I was on bail for about 18 months. So I was still in the Marines. I was under curfew and I couldn't deploy or go anywhere or do anything. Um, but I ended up with a job where I would look after the families of people that had been killed or injured. And um, I mean, that in itself was a was a stress. Um, yeah, so I was looking after the, the families of, of lads that were either injured or, or, or killed. Um, ironically, the first four guys to get whacked, uh, they didn't die, but they all, strangely enough, got shot in the ankle. Um, they were based on top of a building and uh, a bullet ricocheted around the lip on the top of a flat roof and got them all in the ankle. One guy got shot in both ankles. The other guys got shot in one ankle and um, they're all in my troop. So if I'd have been out there, I'd have been able to deploy, it would, they would have been my guys. Um, and they were the first guys to come back. And I looked after a couple of their families and a couple of the guys I'm still in touch with now. Real, real humbling experience. Um, another guy that I'd input into was a famous guy now called Mark Armrod. He was the first triple amputee since, since the Second World War. Uh, kind of looked after his family. That was around Christmas time. So all these things were kind of going on. Like, you know, I was trying to get my own life in order and deal with this imminent trial and, 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 and prison sentence and everything. Yet I, I had to look after these, you know, the, these, the families, loved ones of, of people that had been hurt. And it, it, it was a, it was a real struggle. And there was times I would travel back from Selly Oak, the, the military hospital near Birmingham, just in floods of tears, try, trying to process everything and trying to get, get stock of everything and, and work it all out. Um, to the point when it was a relief when I got sentenced. I was just thinking that I was thinking that there's a sense of normality then, isn't it? You know, you don't know what's coming, but there's a routine, isn't it? And, and yeah. you're used to routine then. So was yeah. there a crossover from that in terms of how you dealt with it? Yeah. It's a bit like, wait till your dad gets home. You shit your pants all day. Yeah. It gets all whacked and you're like, wasn't as bad as I thought. And and that's what it was like. You know, I had 18 months of right at the start. I was looking at life. I was looking at life imprisonment, you know, which was, which was 12 years. Um, and, and I was like, okay, well, no, you know, <laughs> then what? Um, to get five years, knowing I would serve two and a half if I kept my nose clean was, was a relief. Like it was, a, it was a gift. It could have been so much worse. Um, again, obstacles and opportunities in it, you know, absolutely. And, yeah. Uh, in, in the process of doing that, I had a psychological report in there. It said, you know, showing signs, characteristics of PTSD. I, I never, ever wanted to accept that as a label and, and, and never did, you know, that was in the report, but I've never, you know, I, I don't, I know, I know, I know some people, it becomes their identity and, and they find it hard to shake off. I, I never wanted that as part of my identity. I just knew that I'm a thinker and I, and I think some people can overthink things. And there was, there was things in the Marines that I'd spent a lot of time overthinking and, um, questioning. And, um, so yeah, so through, through failure, I then, I then was released on the 11th of November, 2010, Remembrance Day, <laughs> which I felt was a gift. 
Uh, I went straight from, in fact, I could talk about my, my, my time in prison. Cause that, I mean, that was, that was pretty incredible as well. Um, I managed to get to an open prison pretty quickly. So after six months, I went to an open prison well before I should have done really. That's normally on good behavior, isn't it? Is that yeah, of, yeah. Yeah. It's on, on good behavior. So what would, in a prison sentence, you have what's called a red date and it's red stands for release eligibility date. So this is a date in which you could, you know, if a, if a family member died, you could perhaps go to the funeral because you passed your red date. You, you've served half of your servable sentence. So for me, it was half of two and a half years. And, and I got to, basically, I, I ended up at a category A prison. So this is like top, you know, top security. In fact, just below my window was a cage where Charlie Bronson used to buddy used to exercise him, you know, it was a serious prison up in Hull. And, um, and it was <laughs> not too much like the garage that, you know, the, the room that we're in now, you know, it's pretty bleak and, um, it, it was pretty horrible. And I, I, talk, I was chatting to people and I was like, you know, what, what happens now? How do we progress through this system? And, you know, what, what do we do? And, and they said, well, you can perhaps try and get to like a, a cat B prison, which is like a semi open prison where instead of being locked up two man in a room, 23 hours a day, you, you're on, you're on like a block. And you'll have your own like little bit of a kitchen and you've got a large communal yard and you might be locked up just overnight or whatever. So oh, that sounds better. So I, um, I put in all the paperwork and thought, I'm just going to put it in, see what happens. And, um, after a week I got it, I, I just could, could not believe it. And, um, but I wrote a big case in there, you know, of this is why I need to move and yada, yada, yada. And, um, and I got it and I went to a semi-open prison five miles from where the original incident took place. Uh, this guy being a major player in the criminal world, I was like, he has got to have friends in this prison. Yeah. And, um, and I didn't realize where I was going or how close it was until I drove past the guy's house in the prison bus. And I was like, my God, I, I recognize this place and I know exactly where I am. And then drove into the prison. And when I got there, there, there was a large communal uh, yard and there was regularly, there was, people getting slashed by improvised knives and stuff like that. And in fact, some people were walking around with, with magazines and newspapers tucked down their, their belt, you know, their um, trousers to protect themselves from getting stabbed and, and, and slashed. And I was like, I'm, I'm probably going to get done here because of the proximity to this guy's, the guy's house. Um, so I was super alert and um, a position, so you start off, you go to what's called an induction wing where you settle into prison, you know, and they find your place on one of the other wings. And um, a place came up on on the drug rehab wing. And and I didn't really know what the drug, re drug rehab wing was. Um, but they said, you know, you're going to be locked up 23 hours a day, it's own private yard and all this. And I thought, right, th that's probably the safest place for me to be. So I was like, right, okay, I'll, I'll have that room. And I went and uh, luckily I got in with a guy who didn't have a drug problem, similar kind of thing to me. He was actually an all right guy to share a room with. And, um, but it meant I was still locked up 23 hours a day. And what I started to do was I started to think, right, what, what is my best means of defense and fight, freeze, flight, flight. <laughs> And I, I started to run. I started to run around the yard um, every time I got got let out of my my cell, thinking that if somebody wants to attack me, they'll have to catch me. And if they catch me, 
maybe they're too knackered to, <laughs> to do anything. Um, so I started running around the yard and the yard was like 20 meters by 40 meters. It wasn't very big. And I just used to do laps and I became that, that forest grump, forest gump type person that, you know, people must've been looking at me thinking, what is this idiot doing? Cause I'd run around in my prison issue plimsolls and, you know, and just keep running until for the full hour, you know? And, um, and, th and that's what I did as, as part of my routine as, as protection really. Uh, I then managed to get like a single room and, and, um, and things were a lot better, but I still kept up the running. And, uh, and whilst all this was going on, I, I knew I was struggling um, mentally I was struggling. I, I spent a lot of time sort of crying and not really feeling sorry because I'd lost my career and all that. That was done and dusted. And I understood what I was dealing with, but I was still, I was still trying to process things. That I'd, so is that sort of feeling a little bit lost? Is it? Or... Yeah. Lost, depressed, low, um, questioning things that I'd done in the past, uh, in the military, mm. you know, some things that I'm like, I just don't know now that I've got my own kids, I don't know how that sits with me now, you know, because in the conditioning in the Marines, you're taught that it's, it's, it's the enemy, you know, it's a target. I had kids and suddenly it was like, but it's not a target. It's a brother, a dad, a son, maybe some cases a sister and mother, you know what I mean? And, and I'm like, I don't know how this fits with me now. Uh, and I spent, spent a lot of time trying to, trying to work it out and, and feeling guilt and, you know, and then, and then, you know, there were times when I was struggling with images that were just imprinted on my brain and, um, and, and events that I'd seen and done in, in the Marines. And I, and I was really struggling with it. Uh, anyway, I progressed from there. I then put in all the paperwork to try and get to an open prison, um, which you don't usually get to until after your red date. You just, you just don't, there's no point because you can't do anything. You can't have all the benefits of an open prison. I, doing like voluntary work or something like that until you've passed your red date. But I, I put all the paperwork in and thought, sod it, you know what, I'm going to do it. And, um, and I got moved to an open prison with, with pretty much two years left to serve on my servable sentence, uh, which is way too early really. But it all fell into place because it was, everybody had to have a job. Um, and I'd been told that the best job was in the gym. So I was like, right. And, but I'd been told there's a massive waiting list for the gym there's no point trying to apply because, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought, sorry, I'm, I'm just going to go and, and, and try. And I went to speak to the, um, the prison officers in the gym. It turns out there's two ex-Marines working in the gym, which I didn't, I didn't know. And, and they didn't necessarily know me. Um, but I, I spoke to, uh, the guy that ran the gym and I said, look, you know, I, I've just got here. I've got months and months to go before I can get out and get a job or whatever. Um, I'm really keen. I'm an ex-Royal Marine, yada, yada, yada any chance of a, of a job. And he said, I'll, I'll get back to you. And, um, it turns out he spoke to the other guys and said, you know, what do you think? And they, and they basically said, well, if he's a Marine, you know, he should be, he should be all right. And let's give him a chance. And I, I got a chance in the gym. And that's when I started doing two things, really. First of all, studying things like I did a gym instructor's course, a personal training course, nutrition course, and I did loads of courses there uh, as, as the gym. I, I worked in the gym environment. So I, you know, that was good experience. And the other thing as well is that one of the guys, the ex-Marine called Mark, I won't share his name just for, I probably shouldn't share his name, but um, he, he was very much an early adopter of CrossFit, functional training, primal nutrition, paleo nutrition. And he completely opened my eyes up to 
the way that you can achieve weight loss, you know, more than what the, what people think the standard is. I mean, how long have we been trying to lose weight by controlling calories and you know, all this kind of stuff? And it, and it never really worked. And, and he completely changed my, my way of thinking and taught me things. That I'm just like, I still in my business now, are foundational things in, in, in what we deliver. Um, and, uh, so anyway, went through that. Eventually I was running out of time. Are we all? No. Eventually I was, um, <gasps> I, um, I became elig eligible to, to work, you know, to go work in the, um, in the community. And, uh, I managed through a, a series of events and people that I know I managed to get a job working for a, a charity that, uh, that, that worked with kids with challenging behavior. So every day I would, I would head out of the prison first thing in the morning. I would go to the college and I would, I would teach them. They would basically, I taught them, uh, um, how to prepare to join, join the forces. So I, I use an armed forces preparation course and, uh, which I wrote and, and, and delivered. And I was doing things like, like I couldn't have a car, but I went and got a gliding license. <laughs> And, and all the prison officers were like, you know, what the hell is going on here? You know, you're supposed to be in prison. You're off abseiling every day. And, but it, you know, it was just, the, that's the skill set I had. And, yeah. you know, if I was a, if I was a, a clerk and I could type, I would probably be typing, but that, that's just a skill set I had. And, um, incredibly, incredibly fortunate and, uh, and really, really grateful for those, for that job as well. You know, it was the first job that I, I ever had and ever will have, if I'm honest. Um, so I did that and eventually I, I would get out of the prison and, uh, that, that was where things got really tough because, um, I basically, I'd gone from two institutions and, and now I really didn't know how to fit in and I had a criminal record and, uh, and, and I thought I'd lost all my credibility and, you know, I just thought it was a real, a real outcast and I, I lived sort of homeless for a while. Well, I lived with a, with a woman for a while who, um, who loved me, but I didn't really, I didn't love her, you know, it pains my, my heart to, to say that, but that was, that was true. I tried desperately, but, uh, but it just wasn't going to work out. Um, and, and I just basically wanted to run away and live in a cave somewhere. And, um, and eventually I, I did like, I, <laughs> I went and, and kind of lived on the streets for a bit and dipped in and out of a, a friend's house as well, a bit of sofa surfing, but in, you know, was, was pretty much homeless. Um, I was living, in the back of an old rusty van on a campsite. And, um, but I was starting to get happy. You know, I, life was simple. I was catching rabbits and eating apples and, and I, and I was happy, you know, I was kind of controlling things. Um, I went for a couple of jobs, didn't get the jobs, Well, I went for one job to be honest. And, um, for an armed forces preparation course in a local college in Somerset where I was living. And because of the criminal record, I didn't get it. And and I just remember being so embarrassed thinking I'm the best guy that's, that's going to walk through this door for this job. And because of that, I'm not going to get it. And, and I made a promise to myself there that I'll never ever apply for another job that I was going to work for myself. And you know, where it didn't matter, you know, and my, my results and everything would speak for, for themselves. Um, and that's what I did. I haven't applied for a job since and, and I have no intention of ever ever going for a job again in so my that life. that sounds like a real sort of pivotal, enlightening moment of, right, someone else is prejudging me here on a piece of paper and obviously my history. You know that you've got a lot more to offer. 
So I'm going to take control here. And that probably ties into a little bit around freedom. So important here. So, so, so how did you get to where you are today? Then I can, I can see the stories around, you know, fitness, health, but you know, a huge part of your life for the past well, 10 years now has been, um, team bootcamp, wasn't it? You know, and helping others to lose weight. And that obviously crosses over with your experience in prison. So just talk us through that, you know, and, and accelerate us through it. Cause it's an incredible story. Yeah. So, um, in effect, so what happened when I was in the the rusty old van, I was like, what, what am I going to do? Um, I went to the job center. Job center was like, look, you've got, you've got to do, you've no fixed address. You know, you, you haven't paid national insurance for a couple of years. I mean, no, I've been in, I'm in prison, you know what I mean? And all this kind of stuff. And it was just, uh, I, I tried to get some kind of benefits and they've said basically for eight weeks, nine weeks, whatever, you just can't claim anything. So well, eight weeks, I'll have my own bloody... You know, I'll be able to wipe my own ass and sort myself out. So it was just a waste of time. And and I was just like, I, never again will I go cap in hand for, you know, for for, for anything really, you know. And, and, and I was just like, enough's enough. If anybody's going to get you out of this, you are. It coincides with another event that went on um, in that I, I was suicidal and um, I very nearly drove my car into uh, into oncoming traffic. And, um, the only reason I didn't two things was one, my two boys, I couldn't leave them without a dad. You know, I already felt a failure to them because I'd, I'd been to prison and, um, and I didn't, I didn't want it to end like that. And then my mum, you know, who stood by me through everything, everything, you know, constantly going, you made your bed, get on with it. You know what I mean? I'll be here to help you, <laughs> but you got to get on with it, you know, and, and, that, that's where a lot of my strength comes from. And uh, so I decided that through the gym courses and all that kind of stuff, I was pretty pretty good at training people and, and I quite enjoyed it. And um, my my older brother bought me, or my younger brother bought me a laptop. Um, my little sister gave me a little internet dongle back in the day when you needed a dongle to get online. And um, and my older brother built me a little website and uh, and I started a little personal training business from the back of a van. And, um, and I soon, what happened was I, I soon realized that it doesn't matter how good a trainer you are. If you can't get the word out, you, you just, you're just blowing in the wind. And, um, so I started to look at marketing and the psychology of selling and all that. And I started to pick up clients and I used half the money to live and pay for my pitch on a, on the campsite and, um, and to eat and build the business. And then I spent half the other half of the money on private counseling. I tried to get counseling through the NHS and a, th a few service charities, well-known service charities. And they said I was too high a risk to help, which is just boils my, boils my blood, but, um, it, it is what it is. And that wasn't going to stop me. And I went through, I went through the counseling and, um, and it was, it was immense. You know, I know there's different types of counseling, there's different types of therapy. And I know people have got, they've tried stuff and it's not worked, but what I would say if there's people out there struggling, keep, keep searching because, I looked across, there's a, a woman in front of me, tiny little woman, looked like Thelma out of Scooby-Doo, you know, and I was thinking, what the hell do you know about war fighting? Nothing. But I'd committed to myself to run the process, whatever process she was going to run, I was going to run it and, and, and see where we go. You know, I owed it to my lads and to my mum to, to give it everything that I've, I've got. And, um, first session I was like wasting my time, but committed to it and, and kept going and then things started to fall into place and I thought I was going to go and deal with dead bodies that were imprinted on my mind 
and it soon, you know, when I started working other things out, that all fell away, you know, and, and after sort of 10 weeks, I was like, look, I'm golden. I'm ready to go. And, um, but she was like, look, let's, let's just keep, you know, got another couple of sessions. Let's just keep going and kept going. And, and they turned out to be the most enlightening sessions and, you know, the pivotal sessions. It was just incredible. Got nothing but good, good words to, um, to say about that process. And then, uh, I started, so my personal training business was building and building and I started working like freelance at a residential boot camp. And I met an incredible woman called Paula, who you know, who, and um, she was kind of managing this residential boot camp. And, and I ended up kind of managing the trainers and running like, as the lead trainer. And um, we, we decided through a whole series of events, probably a different podcast or whatever, that we was going to set up our own place. In fact, I'd go as far as to say we had less than nothing because I had a tarnished name, uh, or I thought I had a tarnished name. And um, my wife, Paula, was my wife at the time, but she has she suffers with bipolar disorder. She's been sectioned four times. So I always say, you know, people, and people have said to me in the past, I wish I had it easy like you. And I'm like, easy. You know, we started with less than nothing. Less than nothing, yeah, you know? They know eh? Yeah, at least you're starting, even, even if you've got like nothing, you had so much more than we did, you know, um, but literally nothing. We started a residential boot camp. We hired a, we rented somehow a three million pound home <laughs> in the middle of the country. As you do. <laughs> and, um, and, and just started getting clients in there. And uh, over a period of seven years, we built it up and built it up to the point where we're about to feature on the BBC two documentary tonight. Um, we've literally had thousands of people uh, from all over the world come and stay with us to, to lose weight and get fit. Uh, we, I think we worked it out recently that we're, we've done about 42 tonnes of body fat in, in, the, in the time that we've been open, which is just an incredible amount of not only calories, but work, you know, that, that people have gone through. Um, yeah, and it's just getting, going, you know, from, from strength to strength and, and you know, that's, that's it really. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's it, a lot more it's... than that. I, I do, I do think I, I, you know, that the, the principle behind team bootcamp and, and, and the way you deliver that is a, is a whole nother conversation in itself. But I think just to paint the picture for the people at home, and obviously they can look at your website, team bootcamp, um, to see a little bit more, but people have this, uh, image in their mind of, you know, they just get thrashed day to day, you know, six, seven sessions a day for a week, absolutely knackered, go home broken. Yes. They've lost a bit of weight. But there's so much more, isn't it, at, at Team Bootcamp? And I think that's what your USP is, everything else that goes around that. So, you know, could you could you just summarize your principles as Team Bootcamp? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an analogy that, that explains it perfectly, and that is if you had a million-pound racehorse, would you thrash it into the ground every day? No, you wouldn't. Why do it to yourself? You know, and, and, and every other bootcamp, it's about thrashing people in the mud. And yes, they're going to lose weight, a lot of weight, in a, in a, in a quick amount of time. But that's not sustainable. And as soon as you get home, because of the way that they've done it, they're, they're, you know, they're going to binge on the way home and, and put all the weight back on, if not more. And there's a really high chance they're going to get injured. Even the military don't train like these boot camps train. So we decided that uh, we would do it in a smarter manner. Um, and, and TEAM is an acronym. It stands for Think, Eat and Move. And, and we, start, we, we now say Think, Eat and Move better. But we used to say Think, Eat and Move differently because... We did it in a different manner. So we incorporated rest days into our training program. 
um, because that's when we get fitter and, and that's where, you know, and we can make a program sustainable by having rest days in there. You can't perform 100% all the time. It's just impossibility. Um, we changed the way that they ate. So we have like a primal um, a primal way of eating. We cut out a lot of processed and refined foods. We didn't count calories. We still don't count calories to this day. The reason being that a calorie works in a test tube in a scientific lab, but your body's not a test tube. And um, different foods do different things to prove it. 250 calories of Coca-Cola against 250 calories of broccoli. Completely different foods, different messages in the body, same amount of calories. And then on some food, on some weight loss programs, both acceptable. It's just ridiculous, you know. But um, so we went against the grain with that. And um, and then the move stuff, we, we, did, we did lots of like functional intense sessions, but interspersed with those uh, relaxation periods and rest periods. So we have hypnotherapy in there. We have you know, uh, mindfulness and meditation in there. We used to, we don't do it so much now, but we used to send people to bed on a Wednesday afternoon. Um, but people had just, they started like heading off for a spray tan and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. So I was like, right, okay, we need to change that. But, you know, because that's, that rest period is, that's the most important thing, like, you know. Um, so kind of, that, that that's how we do it. Yeah, and there's, there's so much crossover there regarding, again, the, the elite athletes that, you, you get you get fitter in the rest periods, you know, by the the response to the training, not the actual training itself. Although that's got to be smart and and designed correctly, it's all about the rest periods. And one of the biggest challenges we have with our athletes actually is is, is that sleep. Mm. You know, in terms of getting the the rest period, so you're recovered enough, so you can go and train again the next day, so you can improve through the rest of the day and getting that that psychological and physical rest. You know, it's really really important. And I think that's a key message. You know, for everybody here that regardless of what it is that creates your tiredness, you need to get that rest period. You need to manage your energy levels um, because you'll just go in that vicious circle otherwise, won't you? Do you see a lot of people coming in sort of got burnout a little bit as well? Do they come here for a rest, if that makes sense? Yeah, we get a lot of type A people, mm. a lot of people from the corporate world that have, they feel a little bit, um, I don't know, they, don't, they feel like they shouldn't take a holiday, that yeah. they should be working on something. If it's not work, then it's themselves. So they'll come to boot camp because it's acceptable as a holiday, you know, breaks. So we get a lot of people like that and um, people come and you, you can just tell that they are, they are fatigued, whether it's adrenal fatigue or whether it's just physical fatigue, you can just tell. And um, we, we have a, a thing where we, we sell people what they want. They want rapid weight loss and they want, you know, activity and all this kind of stuff, but actually we give them what they need. So we, we'll pull them people out and we'll look at their adrenals and we'll really focus on their sleep you know, and um, there's a couple of things that we can do with food to help with that. Um, so, yeah, we're constantly looking at that. And it might be that we have a, a meeting in the morning and say, right, this person here is incredibly stressed. And actually the, the training, we're like, well, okay, whatever they do, not bothered. Yeah. But we're going to focus on getting them some good sleep, some good rest, turning the phones off, you know, and we're really going to focus on that bit. So, yeah, we, a hell of a lot. And um it's that classic case, isn't it, that we always feel like we should be doing. Yeah. But whilst ever we're doing, we're not thinking, you know, and, and the doing is just a stimulus. Like the, the, the fitness training is just a stimulus. It's, it's a switch, it's a spark or whatever. The process, the power is in the rest because that's when you, you know, you take the stimulus and then you, you, you manage it, manipulate it or whatever, and that creates fitness in the fitness world. And it'll be the same in the corporate world, you know, the doing is the stimulus. 
Yeah, and I think so. That's that's the bit of using knowledge and science so to work smarter, isn't it? Not harder. And as humans, we're pre-programmed to well, you know, I'm up against it. Let's just work harder. So let's check my emails at 11 p.m., 12 p.m., and then I've got a busy brain, and I'm up again at 6 a.m. because I I can't justify all that sleep. Well, actually, the easiest way to to, to, to for people to sort of make sense of it or for it to resonate is whenever you've been in work and you've especially if you sat at a desk you know when you go out for lunch and you come back you solve the problems that you couldn't solve in the morning they're a lot easier it's because you've had a change of you know focus change of reference you've distracted the brain the subconscious brain's carried on going and you come back refreshed with a new set of eyes and you'll be able to solve it on you and you know sitting at that screen all day is, is not going to solve that for sure now craig we've only just got started mate <laughs> and, and we're rolling on and on i know that and we're time time pressured so what a great backstory what a great introduction and i really want to if it's okay with you i want to pick this up in in a few weeks time when we want to talk around you know your book uh your experiences of doing the marathon de saab and you've literally just come back from the ice ultra these amazing experiences and also your vision in the future regarding you know a guinness world record attempt for an amazing amazing charity um and your plans for boot camp and no doubt things i'm not even aware of yet that you've got up your sleeve so just for the guys at home that are listening in, where, where can they go and find out more information about, about what you're up to at the moment? Um, for, for Team Bootcamp, it is literally team-bootcamp.com. Um, you can watch, obviously, type into Catch Up TV or whatever, Miriam's Big Fat Adventure, which is on, on the telly tonight, and you can kind of get a feel for that. Me personally, um, I have my own website. It's uh, getcraigwilliams.com. So you can you can check that out and that'll lead you to all the different socials and all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, that's it really. They're the two two main... Two main oh, brilliant. And I'm sure people will follow up on that. Well, from my perspective, thanks very much. There was There's some new stuff in there. I mean, we've, we've, we've chatted for a long time. It was fantastic. And your candor and, and, and openness is really, really appreciated. And I'm sure it's, it's resonated. And I don't think you realise how much of an inspiring person you are to a lot of people that you come in contact with. And it's it's only going to go on and have more positive effect for more and more people, not just through bootcamp, but through your, your day-to-day job. And I can't wait to sit down and, and talk to you in the next episode where we look forward-facing. We talked a lot yeah. about now and the past. Let's look to the future and, and and the great work you're going to be doing and certainly the collaboration we're going to do together because it, it's going to be special, that's for sure. So thanks very much, Craig. Much appreciated. No, thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed the latest edition of the P3 Podcast. If you'd like to engage further with us, then please come and follow us across all social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And of course, follow us on wherever you get your podcasts to be one of the first to be notified of any new content.